Welcome to Luxi, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science behind luxury items. This week's topic is extremely timely. We will be going on a tour in Athens of some amazing street art soon, and street art is usually done with spray paint. This week's episode is going to take a little bit of a left turn from what we have been talking about to examine something that many might not associate with luxury, although the famous street artist Banksy uses spray paint. Okay. And I would argue that street art is the epitome of luxurious because it's about turning the ordinary world into something extraordinary. Okay. So Demos, have you ever spray painted anything? Oh gosh, as a kid I grew up using all the Krylon cans for spray painting bicycle frames or pieces of wood to look like something else or uh, repairing damage to um, whatever I was playing with or other people's stuff <laughs> so that they couldn't tell I damaged it. <laughs> but you've never done any graffiti tagging or street art? I have never tagged anything. Yeah, same here. It seems like it would be fun, though. Nah. No? Nah. It's... Nah. But I've repaired repeating repeat <laughs> yes. tagging over and over. And we're going to talk about that later. Yes. Okay. So just a little background on street art before you dive into spray paint. And you can argue that the history of street art goes back to the earliest cave paintings. And there are some examples of ancient graffiti from ancient Greece and Rome, and but these were usually carved into surfaces. Yeah. Um, I find they're kind of funny because some examples are ancient Greek or Roman tourists to Egypt. And mm-hmm. so even back then, tourists were carving their thoughts into things they shouldn't and so some of them are like one of the inscri- inscriptions says i visited here and i didn't like anything except the sarcophagus <laughs> <laughs> that's a great inscription it's, yeah. it sounds like a google maps review yeah but we more commonly think of as graffiti or street art likely had its beginnings in the 1920s and 30s in new york city where rival gangs used name-based tags to mark their territory they controlled At the same time, art murals were being introduced into Southern California cities. Street art really kicked off in the 1960s when New York City had a ton of vacant lots and boarded up buildings, and that became the canvas for creative kids, um, probably first in Spanish Harlem. In the 1980s, street art and graffiti found its way into art galleries and museums with Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat being some of the first street art artists to find more commercial popularity. And obviously Banksy is probably the best known one right now. And there's a slight difference. Street art is usually more intentional and it's sometimes commissioned and it uses elements of graphic design and more imagery, whereas graffiti is usually not commissioned and it's usually text-based. So you're tagging with a name or something like that. After all that, what is the actual paint that they use for street art? What is spray paint? Well, I'm going to talk about that. But before I go there, Mm -hmm. I used to remember back in like, late 90s and early 2000s you could see people grab a canvas on the street and put a like plastic bucket over it then spray around it with a spray paint or spray through it and then spray around it and they'd create like these starscapes or spacescapes hmm. like plants and they do like the jupiter and the moons i just always used to love that and then they would finish off their artwork by taking a can of lacquer and lighting a match in front of it and just like catching everything on fire and then they would sell it to you for a few bucks i have never seen that but it sounds very intriguing oh it was all over new orleans so much fun yeah i didn't go to new orleans till much later so maybe that had died down in popularity by the time i went yeah i i have to admit it's kind of fun but anyway it sounds very fun i may have to especially the fire aspect the concept of 
spray paint was really first required first that the concept of aerosol be understood and, mm -hmm. and developed. So even as early as 1790, when self-pressurized carbonated beverages mm. were introduced in France, the idea that you could take a liquid and aerosolize it. An aerosol is where we have this, a, a specific action of a liquid exiting a nozzle and right. turning into tiny droplets. Now, in 1837, a man uh, by the name of Perpigna invented mm. the soda siphon mm. that incorporated a valve and that incorporated the, the straw that went down to the bottom. Of the so you can. could spray the soda? Yeah, so you could spray it even though... Sort of like, like at the bar, in bars today, yes. you have that like, little you device. Have, you, you brought... You, your grandmother, I think, yeah. collected some of those. The old um, seltzer can. Yeah, and they're amazing because they have the last straw. Yeah, they're beautiful. How is that? Yeah. But they're like sealed with lead. <laughs> I'm sure. So metal spray cans were being tested as early as 1862 for this kind of activity. Uh, they were constructed from heavy steel, but way too bulky to be commercially successful. Yeah. So in 1899, uh, Hebling and Perch invented patented aerosols pressurized using methyl and ethyl chloride hmm. as, as propellants. Mm -hmm. So what we're looking at is some of the original hydrocarbons. Mm -hmm. And that's important because that's the first way that spray paints come into our life. So Eric uh, Rothheim, an engineer from Oslo, Norway, mm -hmm. uh, from like the turn of the century, studied in Zurich as a chemical engineer and established his own company. He kind of was right in the right scientific mm -hmm. pathway for this. He submitted an application for an aerosol spray can in October 1926. The can would dispense different fluids using a chemical propellant. The Norwegian patent was granted in June 1929, and he, and he uh, put in a United States patent um, in uh, a couple of years later, which was approved. In 1998, the, the post office of Norway actually uh, celebrated that invention. So there's a spray can. So was there a commercial industrial use that they were trying to get at for this invention, or they, were they just kind of messing around with the chemistry and thought this would be cool? Well, unfortunately for Eric, he never made any money doing this. I know, but like, did he have an idea like, oh, this would be really cool to use in this industry or this application? Or is he just merely kind of doing the science for the science sake? Well, let me take it one step further. I believe in a lot of cases it was to improve industrial applications of fluids. Okay. When you think of industrial applications, you're thinking of spreading some sort of protective coating, mm. uh, oil rubbing of metals. Mm -hmm. It's a very common thing to be done in the turn of the century for uh, creating a finish that looked good, yeah. but also didn't corrode. Mm -hmm. So some of the earliest applications for any sort of aerosolized um, liquid would be for metallic preservation. So if you research Edward Seymour, you'll find that his company called uh, the Seymour, um, Seymour of Sycamore, mm -hmm. still one of the major paint suppliers. And Edward Seymour uh, will tell you that he invented painting. He didn't <laughs> spray really paint. spray painting. He didn't really invent spray painting or as a concept, but he invented putting it in a can, uh. an, a cheap and expensive can. Mm. And then the can design was easily uh, sellable and right. very inexpensive. Right, yeah. So, um, but he didn't even think of using it for colors. He was going to use it to dispense a solvent that had aluminum flecks and flakes in it so that you could paint a radiator as it came off a factory line before mm. you put it onto an automobile. 
So you could kind of create a, an electrochemical bonding of one metal to another. Right. Okay. And so that, um, and, and even to this day, paint booths that do things like powder coating are a, a, a subset of spray painting, right. which is extremely important in industrial purpose. Yeah. However, his wife said, hey, this is boring. Yeah. Let's stick some colors in there. I get, maybe, maybe we could paint something like our deck chairs. So is the wife. But, you know, even to this day, Seymour still does industrial and engine and, um, and Oh, yeah, paints. sure. Yeah. And uh, interestingly, you can buy go to the Seymour website and buy paints to mark your um, your soccer or football or rugby They're really page. just all in with this technology. They, they are. They are. And uh, still quite, quite, that company seems to be doing quite well. Around the same time, Seymour is working on his contributions to spray paint, Krylon, and Crown Holdings. And you might remember Krylon from yes. their well-known ad campaigns. They're still one of the major suppliers of paint in the U.S., mm -hmm. I think, along with Rust-Oleum. Spray paint, yeah. Yeah, for spray paint. Uh, they were smaller, lighter, cleaner colors uh, that would be applied uh, much faster than any brush or roller could apply. Mm. Once manufacturing industry sort of discovered the benefits, you could really create these beautiful finishes mm. with spray paint. At, at any color easily too and they were it was very advantageous for painting i remember my mom painting i think like deck chairs or something you know, something that has a lot of oh surface area yes. that is not easily to paint with a brush yeah i think using the spray paint really revolutionized the ability to get a nice clean even finish on something like a chair and or yeah, a table especially because or... they have all those little holes in them and everything oh, to yeah, the reduce wicker the cost. Ones? Yeah. <laughs> or even the metal ones oh, that, yeah, yeah. that you sit on. But yeah. it's, yeah, but it's like, don't sit on that without like some sort of clothing on, you know, I'll turn into a waffle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so how does aerosol work scientifically? Well, for the most part, if you look at the, at the patent mm -hmm. disclosures, there's it's essentially is the can with the straw going through it, and then a lot of the design is in how the how you push on the on the button yes. to open up the valve to allow the pressure to escape. Mm. So there's also a P, which is a metal ball bearing at the bottom of the can, and you, when you shake a can of spray paint, the P Everyone moves knows around. That sound, I think. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. It's, like it's the sound that, that lets you know that something's going to get graffiti, and so that that um, P makes sure that there aren't any clumpy spots in the paint. Mm -hmm. And then the paint is pushed by the air uh, or the, or the hydrochlorofluorocarbon or the hydrofluorocarbon down into the straw, which takes up from the bottom of the can and mm -hmm. then up in, through the nozzle. Chlorofluorocarbons were actually used until 1978, but as the ozone hole started to grow and people started to realize that wasn't so cool, yeah, they and, phased uh, out. Good news in environmental science. Apparently, that's been repaired. Yeah, I know it's amazing. Yeah. One of those we can actually make a difference, people. Yes, we can. We can, <laughs> and and that that was actually an international cooperation yes. to do so. Yes, it was. So so imagine what other things we could get. We I can, know. We could be. Hydrocarbons until the 1980s uh, were used then as a replacement, mm. but then as smog regulations came in, uh, just emitting hydrocarbons into the air not so cool. So as the paint leaves the nozzle, the pressure difference between the outside atmosphere and right. what's in the can mm -hmm. um, comes to a point right there at the tiny little point where the paint exits the right. nozzle. Now, these particles are all charged relative to each other the same, which means when they exit and the um, individual particles leave at individual positions, 
two things are happening. Particles are separating from each other, but they're also consolidating into tiny balls mm. as they do so. Because we have positive charge relative to each other of these individual particles, they all sort of repel each other, which further makes the stream a, a, a gas almost of, of paint, not right. just a paint stream, stream but right. a paint gas. What's great about that is that the paint then uniformly spreads and coats, mm -hmm. but also ends up sort of wafting into the air. So if you've ever done spray painting, you'll notice even on a slightly breezy day, most of your paint yes. ends up going <laughs> somewhere, somewhere, else. somewhere <laughs> where you didn't want it to go. Yeah. So that's that's sort of the science of how that works. That's really cool. Um, yeah, it's it's straight it's straightforward. And, yeah, it is. And it's sort funny of that some straightforward I, physics, but it's, I wasn't it's neat. expecting the positive charged particles. Like no, the charge, I wasn't either. Like it's an electro electrochemistry kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Now, there are hazards associated with spray paint, um, and there are volatile organics, mainly in, one, the actual pigments themselves, mm -hmm. as we've yes, dealt we with discussed. in our, yeah. other, our other stories, have their own chemical issues. But in this case, in order to make it a spray paint, you need to have solvents, strong solvents. And mm. there's three that are used, toluene, mm -hmm. xylene, and acetone. Mm. Now, acetone can cause respiratory irritation, but it's not... Uh, known to be accumulated in the body. In fact, um, if you have acetone, extreme acetone exposure, it's generally out of your body in two to four days. That's good. And it's also not considered carcinogenic. Also good. Yes. Toluene is a colorless liquid, sweet, pungent odor. Primary target organ for toluene as well as xylene are both the central nervous system. Mm. Exposure can cause eye, nose irritation, tiredness, confusion, euphoria, dizziness, headache, dilated pupils, a lot of the things that you would assume with, right. a, with a central nervous system breakdown. And of course, so over the longer periods of time, uh, liver and kidney damage, as well as nerve damage. Other occupational risks um, for people who work with uh, toluene um, include uh, people who, who work in construction and uh, nail salons, because it's apparently used as well as a solvent in, um, in, in nail material. But if it's aired out, also not known to be carcinogenic. Hmm. And uh, it's in cal gasoline, too. So I feel like everything's in gasoline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Xylene is the final one. It's an aromatic hydrocarbon also used as a solvent. Yeah. It's stronger than toluene and much more capable. It's found, however, in naturally existing in wood spirits. So these, these items on their own do make for um, a reasonably um, potent yeah. solvent. Yeah. And, um, and here we're looking a little bit at the benzene ring. But uh, for what research I've done so far, none of these pose extremely serious uh, risks to human life. Um, they do pose immediate risks if they're inhaled in any reasonable amount of concentrations. I think that's part of the issue is that some people inhale um, aerosols as a do. way to get high, and then um, it's uh, that's not so good. Exactly. Benzene is a classified as a carcinogen. And really, those when those are inhaled, they provide that intoxicating and hallucinatory effect. And why is that? Because you're immediately targeting your central nervous system. Yeah, it's, from what I understand, it's a really short effect, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because of the um, 
double whammy of the multiple chemicals, mm -hmm. you can get short, delayed, as well as immediate effect. So it, yeah. it can work quickly. Yeah. And that's uh, one of the things that's happened. That is the research I have on the science, but I do have some fun facts. Okay, what are your fun facts? Krylon's color of the year for 2023. I do not know. It's Spanish moss. Ooh. Kind of a dark army green color. Hmm. I wonder if it's that's akin to the, what is that, disappearing green or whatever it was we talked about from Disney you know, World. It's an interesting point that you made about that because it, it seems like it could be. Yeah. The largest spray paint mural, I checked this on Guinness World Book of Records, there's two. There's two categories. One is by one artist and one is by a team. Mm. By one artist, there's a Avital in Israel, created a mural of like a, an underwater scene. It's a, a 2,000 square meters. Mm. Mural. However, a while back during the um, uh, Rio Olympics in 2016, um, the roads that lined the approach to the Olympic uh, Boulevard mm. um, included murals, including one by Eduardo Cobra and his team of spray paint artists called Etinas, and it's uh, 560 feet long. Mm. Um, it's painted on the side of a chocolate factory, <laughs> making the chocolate, uh, making the building of the factory look like an enormous chocolate bar. That's really cool. And the um, and there's actually an image of someone kayaking through the chocolate. That's really neat. So and that is 61,000 square feet, Oof. or five 5,700 square meters. It's impressive. So um, those are some of my fun facts. Well, I found some interesting things about spray paint as well. So say, hypothetically, that you live in a city and the side of your property keeps getting tagged. Indeed. I mean, just hypothetically, hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically, sure. And then the city, hypothetically, bugs you to paint it over or you can get a fine. Mm -hmm. And that just keeps happening over and over again. Yeah, yeah. No yeah. particular person's experience I have in mind. Just sometimes, a hypothetical. once a month. <laughs> and you want to try to figure out who is doing the tagging. So one way that you can connect the spray paint on your wall to a paint in an actual spray paint can is called Attenuated Total Reflectance Furrier Transformed Infrared Spectroscopy. So this technique was one that we actually discussed in our last podcast episode. Uh, art conservation and restoration makes use of what's called FITR um, or Fourier Transformed Infrared Spectroscopy quite a bit to identify the chemical makeup of paints, fillers, and binders when they're restoring paintings. And we actually have talked about spectroscopy itself a fair bit in this podcast, but as a refresher, spectroscopy is the study of the interaction of light and matter. So you're measuring the spectra or the electromagnetic radiation, electromagnetic radiation of matter to get information about the structure and properties of that matter. Yes. So the attenuated total reflection portion of this technique allows for the samples to be analyzed in either a liquid or a solid state. Mm -hmm. So it quantifies the changes to an internally reflected infrared beam after it comes in contact with a sample. And the beam is focused on a crystal in the instrument that has a high refractive index and the sample is put on the crystal. So the parts of the spectrum where the sample absorbs energy, the wave from the beam will either be altered or attenuated, and this is measured by the detector. And then you get a distinctive spectra or pattern yeah. as a readout. So the Fourier transformed infrared portion of the technique is um, basically that you can use you can get a spectrum 
uh, from either the admission or the absorption of any phase of sample, so liquid, gas, or solid. So it just okay. extends the usability. And this is a non-destructive technique, which is why a lot of art restoration like it. What comes out of this technique is a specific spectra or uh, pattern that can be compared to a database of spectra or patterns or analyzed on its own to see the molecular components of the sample. That's basically what it gives a fingerprint, if you will, of what's in the sample. Okay, so this is a, yet another way of an analyzing what your paint is made of. The Correct. Are. Scientists from the Department of Forensic Science at Punjabi University use this technique to see if they can match spray paint patterns or spectra from graffiti and the samples from a can. Okay. And this was published in 2021 in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. And what they found is that spray paint on paper and fabric was hard to identify because it resulted in a poor spectra or poor pattern. Cement walls were also not conducive to this type of analysis because cement got scraped off along with the paint and that caused interference in the yeah. analysis. Yeah, but common. what they did find is that the floor, for floors, gloves, metal, plastic, leather shoes, tile, wood, and hair, they could match the spray paint from the graffiti 100% to the source paint can. Okay. So you can essentially um, find the smoking gun. Yeah. And there might be, it might be that you can't find the particular can. Maybe you could find a particular batch of that paint. They didn't go into like looking at several different type, like several different cans from the same batch to see if it's, if it's that um, finite of a, of a detection what the limit of detection was, but I thought it was interesting nonetheless. So if you go and graffiti something extremely uh, valuable, yes, then they can find you. Potentially. Just don't oh. keep the can, I guess, is the... Yeah, yeah. But don't make sure none of it gets on your shoes or on your hands yeah. or on your clothes. Yeah. That's really cool. So even if you don't happen to have a spectrometer to identify who has graffitied your house, uh, chances are you'd still want to get rid of it, right? Okay. Yeah. And... If you're responsible for a historic site and it gets vandalized, then you really want to get rid of it. And yes. your options are not as many because you don't want to destroy the underlying historical site. Yes. It can take off, like you said, the concrete or mm -hmm. whatever other material yeah. it's attached to. So researchers, and unlike us, you can't paint over it. <laughs> well, yeah. No, I mean, that's one way to do it. Researchers from the University of Canberra and the Australian National University have a solution. And it's just as practical for the everyday home as owner as the spectroscopy. Great. <laughs> yeah. great. It'll be cheap and easy. Oh, uh, yeah, no. In their research published in Optics Express, which to me sounds like an eyeglasses store, but apparently <laughs> it's a journal. Express. I love it. Should be a night glass store. Yeah. They looked at femtosecond lasers to clean a variety of colors of spray paint off Maruya granite, which is often used for monuments and sculptures in Sydney and New South Wales. Shout out to our two Aussie listeners. Pulsed lasers are lasers that emit light in the form of optical pulses and not continuously. The most popular pulse lasers are nano pulse lasers, and these are just lasers that have the pulses in the nanosecond range. Uh, and these are already being used to treat historical stonework and are good at removing red, blue, and black paints. They're not as good at other colors, particularly silver, because it still has that metallic element to the paint. And they may induce discoloration in the stone if they are done on granite. 
So femtopulse lasers break the molecular bonds of the material being removed without passing the shock wave or heat into the source material. So basically mm-hmm. they can just do the skin, the top layer, and that because they're such short wave lasers, they don't penetrate into the granite underneath. Yes. So this is particularly good for materials such as granite that have minerals in them with different heat sensitivities. So the researchers successfully removed blue, green, red, yellow, and silver paint from the granite without damaging it. Okay, this is good. It's very good. Um, so better than just coming at it with a torch. Yeah, probably. Um, is this what's also used for uh, tattoo removal? Oh, you know, that's a good question. We have an episode on tattoos coming up, and okay. I'm sure we will answer that. Okay. But my, I suspect maybe not because you do actually need to penetrate a bit to remove the tattoo that's true yeah, yeah. i suspect it's nano pulse later sir but we'll mm-hmm. see maybe we should make a bet i i think you're gonna win the bet <laughs> so now some kind of bad news about spray paints a study published in 2022 in the environmental chemistry letters by Zhu et al found that spraying paint is a source of microplastics in soils So microplastics are um, tiny plastic particles that result from both commercial product development and the breakdown of larger plastics. And paints are likely a source of microplastics since they contain polymer binders as a key ingredient. So the authors came up with a separation protocol to separate potential paint-derived microplastics from the soil. And um, this is because these paint-derived plastics would be denser than most other microplastics, so they needed a new technique. And one of the techniques, can you guess what they used to extract paint-derived microplastics from the soil? Oh, uh, I'm not sure. Xylene. Oh, okay, so just a solvent. Yes, a solvent, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so they took the soil samples from walls near graffiti in Berlin, and they found between five, f- between 1,500 and 30,000 particles per gram of soil of microplastics. Hmm. Yeah, so authors recommend continually monitoring soil for microplastics and monitoring spray painting of larger structures to reduce environmental contamination risk. Well, It's a bummer. Yeah, I think soil in general, these days, you can't just buy soil anymore. It almost has to be, like, purified. Yeah, but I do have one last item so we don't end on a bummer. Okay. So Nalim Singh et al. published in 2018 in Scientific Reports on a Paintable Battery. Yes, yes. And you sent me that article. I did, because I have to admit that I thought you would understand it better than I. But essentially, they fabricated rechargeable lithium-ion batteries by a multi-step spray painting technique of all the components. And they chose spray paint since it's easy to do and you can go either do it in small-scale spray cans or large-scale industrial spray guns. And what I thought... The fun fact that I liked is they sprayed the battery on a number of different surfaces, including spelling the word rice onto a ceramic mug. <laughs> that's pretty funny. And I'm assuming that's Rice University. Uh, I don't think so, but... <laughs> that's really good. That's pretty cool. But they said that the... Yes, I- it is Rice University. University yeah. So they said the idea of this is that you could make these sprayable batteries and link them together kind of like Lego units and then integrate them into other devices such as solar cells. Yes, and solar cells themselves, um, the amorphous ones, are also made using a joint vapor deposition, which is a form of spraying of material yeah. onto um, onto a substrate. So I thought that was kind of cool. The idea, everyone, you know, I still think the battery is a fairly um, 
dense and heavy object or solid and to think that you could spray paint all the components and get a working battery is i think really interesting well frankly um it's either spray painting or screen printing screen printing yeah. is used on so many processes in the world of electrical engineering and including solar cells mm. solar cells are screen printed the same way t-shirts are screen printed see you learn something new every day <laughs> there you go so you ready for a glossary I am always ready for a glossary. Okay, spectroscopy. Spectroscopy is the use of the ability to... <laughs> I can't. It's the study of the interaction of light and matter. It's essentially okay. using light to determine the material composition of something. Yes. Uh, pulsed lasers. Pulsed lasers are the ability to deliver an enormous amount of laser radiation for a very brief amount of time. So right. that you can control the distance or the, th the thickness of what you're working on. Right. And fundamentally, they're lasers that emit light impulses and not continuously. Okay. Microplastics. Well, microplastics are tiny plastics that exist in our environment. Yes. All right. Cocktail party fact. I like yours. That's the largest uh, team mural you made using yeah. spray paint yeah yeah the one in in rio de janeiro yeah uh, for the olympics yeah that, uh, it's on a chocolate factory chocolate factory definitely gonna remember that one yeah um what's one identify one way to identify whose paint was used to spray graffiti oh that's the um the Fourier transfer infrared spectroscopy yeah spectroscopy and what is one environmental downside to spray paint the um, hydrocarbons and other volatile organics. Yes, that's... or the microplastics. And the microplastics, so if it break, once it breaks down. Yeah, and how can conservators remove spray paint from stone? Micro, uh, I mean, not nano, but femtosecond lasers. Femtosecond lasers. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of Luxi. Please tell at least two people about this podcast. This is the best way to help us get noticed and find new listeners. Special thanks, as always, to my audio engineer, Demos. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. And please follow us everywhere on social media at LuxiPod. We're going to have some really cool images of Athens street art this week. Yes. Come and see street art with us virtually. 